some length Wednesday night. Um, but I would just encourage you uh, to be in prayer uh, for all life, uh, but particularly for the unborn. Uh, pray uh, for God to end uh, these things that we see out in our world. Uh, but pray for those who are in crisis. Pray for those uh, who have had an abortion. Pray, pray, pray. That's, that's the call. Pray. Um, now, having said all of that, let's turn to God's word. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to Luke chapter 23. We'll begin in verse 26 this morning. And again, this week I have provided you with an outline for my sermon, which I intend uh, to be an aid for clarity's sake uh, and also a benefit to you as you uh, maybe as a place to take notes and also as a way to keep up from week to week from where we've been and where we're headed. Uh, and so, again, those are strictly for your for your benefit. Uh, use them as you see fit, and I hope they will be a benefit to you. Now, Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Let's hear God's word together. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. And saying, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who, was, who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light fell, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Ar Ar Arimathea. He was a member of the council a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. 
and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Great King of all creation, searcher and knower of every heart, we pray that as we approach this Your Word, Your most holy Word, that You might show us ourselves. Lord, in these moments, lay us bare even as you hold up to us the only hope for lost sinners, he who was crucified, died, and was buried, he who is seated even now at your right hand, Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord, by your Spirit, Father, may we see his great mercy, may we see his great love, and may you receive all the glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in thinking about the life, and particularly the the redemptive work of Jesus, uh, theologians will often speak in terms of Jesus' humiliation uh, and of his exaltation. Now, I realize those are terms, at least in this context, that that might not be as familiar to us, but I think it's a helpful distinction for us to make. Uh, In terms of Christ's exaltation... Uh, we begin to think about things like his resurrection, uh, like his ascension, and even now as we've just prayed, his place as judge and king at God's right hand, subduing all things under his rule and under his authority. Uh, we're thinking about his sin, and his defeat of sin and death, uh, how he won the victory, how all of the glory uh, belongs to him and to his father. Uh, we're thinking, as Paul says, that the Father has given him the name that is above every name, so that at his name all things under the earth and in the earth may bow and confess that he is indeed Lord. His exaltation. Now, uh, over the next two or three weeks, four weeks maybe, uh, that exaltation is going to take center stage in our study. Uh, And so that's all I'm going to say about it today. I just simply want you to recognize that that's part of it. And he has been, he, he is, and he will continue to be exalted. Again, that's, that's the way we most often think about Jesus, this side of redemptive history. So that one's easy for us to, to kind of grasp and, and to take in. On the other hand, however, we also speak in terms of Christ's humiliation. And again, I recognize that this may not be a term that we would normally use in relation to Jesus. It may not be, even be one that we're very comfortable using in relation to Jesus. But what we're referring to is really all of Jesus' life as the incarnate Son of God. Again, using Philippians 2 as our guide. Paul says there, although he existed in the form of God... He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, though he was the and is the second person of the Trinity, 
though he had existed for all of eternity, he did not cling to those rights as the, the Son of God, but instead, what did he do? He, he emptied himself by being born in the likeness of human men. In other words, we could say, and because he did that, we can say that every moment, every moment of Jesus' life, from the time of his conception until the time of his death, every moment was a moment of humiliation. It was a moment where he had condescended to such a place to take on human flesh. It was a place so far beneath him, in a sense, that we can describe it as humiliation. Now, now some may say, well, Stephen, that's, that's fairly harsh towards humanity, don't you think? Is it so bad? Is it so hum- really humiliating to be human? Well, again, it is when you are the creator becoming the thing that you have made. It, it is when you are the holy God subjecting yourself to the reality of a sinful world. And it is when you are the God beyond all praising taking the lowest place being born in a manger with no place to to rest your head, with no earthly possessions to call your own. Uh, This week at Megalife, I teach the the youngest little kids. It's a room full of girls, so it's it's a fun time. And we we always draw, I let them draw during the time because it keeps them focused, really. Uh, and this week, we're behind in our study of Luke, but we, are in, we were in Luke chapter 19 at the, uh, the triumphal entry. And so as I always do, and they've heard me do this so many times that they know what's coming, I said, well, all right, y'all draw for me a, a king today, right? And so, you know, they all drew a king. You know, what a king with a crown and the whole thing. But then a couple of them, they knew where I was going, and so they drew their king, but then they also got another sheet of paper, and they drew Jesus as we would picture him here with rags on, just as a normal guy. And I said, well, why did you do that? And they said, well, this is a king, you know, with the crown. They said, this is also a king. I said, you're right. You're absolutely right. This is the king. But as they held it up, what a representation of the truth. Here is a king, and he's in rags. Here is a king, and he doesn't look very kingly at all. And so, friends, to the extent that that Jesus condescended in that way, every moment of his life is unimaginable condescension. Every moment of his life is unimaginable humiliation. Now, before we move on, I wonder, as Christians, do we recognize that truth? We, We are so familiar with the stories of Jesus. We can all quote them, we're so familiar with his life, it's just become second place. Do we recognize the truth of what we read here? How far he stooped, how low he went in coming to earth, how far he, he, he condescended for you and I. Well, friends, that reality alone, that, that he became incarnate, would have been enough to overwhelm us. But, but then, of course, the humiliation here in Luke's account, it escalates to a whole other level as he enters in Jerusalem. 
And look, we don't have the time or the need to recap what we've seen since Luke 19. But last week, as we came to the trials of Jesus, as we saw him falsely condemned before Pilate and Herod by his own people, we, we recognized the culmination of really all Jesus had experienced, uh, but particularly the culmination of this Passover week, the holy, spotless Lamb of God, scorned and mocked and rejected, sentenced to, to die in exchange for a murderer. His humiliation has almost reached its pinnacle. And today, in the text that we have just read, uh, we see it completed. Here, the Lord of glory, the one who existed in the form of God, he is crucified, he dies, he is buried, completely forsaken, completely alone. His humiliation, it reaches its fullness. And what I want us to do in these moments is watch uh, with fresh eyes and with open hearts as all of this unfolds. Friends, today, please hear me now. Today, this is God's plan of salvation. Here is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is the full extent of God's love for you. And it is on full display. And so I want to make a deal with you. For, for the moments that we have left, and I'm going to try to keep them as quick as I can. For these moments, set aside whatever distractions you have. Whatever sin you came in here with, whatever worries you came in here with, whatever, whatever you came in here with today. Set it aside for these moments. See. See this gospel. See this good news for the sake of your eternal soul. See Jesus today. Let's look at it together. The first thing that I want you to notice in this passage is if you have your outline there with you, you'll see it, uh, is the work of Christ. I want you to see, we could have called it, uh, the depths of his humiliation. And you see it in all three of these scenes that are before us. Uh, last week, they condemned him to die. And now they send him to the crucifixion. And it's interesting that, that Luke begins with this account of Simon the Cyrene. And there's much that we can learn about Simon's story and from Simon's story. And we will make an attempt to do that in just a moment. But for now, I simply want you to recognize that Luke's inclusion of this little part is very purposeful. You know, it, it was the tradition, it was part of the penalty of crucifixion that those who were crucified, they had to carry their cross. The, the person being crucified had to bear their cross up the hill to the place where they would be raised. Now let's pause for a second and say that brings a whole new meaning to when Jesus says, you must bear your cross and follow me. 
It's a sermon for another time, but keep that in mind. But here, notice, Jesus does not bear his cross, at least until this point. Someone else does it. And the reason why that is, is most likely at this point, Jesus is so physically deteriorated, he he is so weak already at this point, that he could not pick up his cross and bear it and carry it up the hill. Already he has been beaten. Already he has been scourged. Already there are great gaping wounds in his flesh. Already we could have seen the bone exposed and sticking through. He he is most likely already a bloody mess. So as we turn our eyes from Simon the Cyrene to Jesus, what we see is not the Son of God. What we see is not the one who had been transfigured in all of his glory. No, what we see is the one who is marred beyond all human resemblance. Isn't that what Isaiah said? Someone weak. Someone under any other normal circumstances, if this crowd had not been so angry, so fired up against him, someone who would have been pitied, someone who was barely alive, even at this point. But then, then we arrive at the place called the skull. Then we arrive at Golgotha, a place outside the city walls, a place where the cursed under Jewish law, went to die. And there, friends, there they they drove the nails into his hands and his feet. There they, they raised him up. There they gave him sour wine to prolong his agony, an agony that would have most likely ended in suffocation as his full body weight restricted the, the, the ability of his lungs to function properly. This is, in every way, uh, physical torture, uh, physical humiliation, uh, beyond what, what any of us could have imagined. But not only is it physical, uh, it is also uh, emotional torture, right? Uh, the insults, uh, the mocking, the soldiers gambling beneath the cross for his clothes. The the rulers scoffing, the sign above his head. This is the king of the Jews. Even the the criminal who was actually guilty next to him saying, if you're God, save yourself and save us. Now I said Wednesday night, uh, talking about abortion and talking about those things, that those are issues that get under my skin. Well, this is another one of those issues that would have got under my skin. Because if you tell me I can't do something, even if I can't, I'm going to do everything I can to prove to you that, in fact, I can. Now, I need to repent of that, and that's not a great way to be. But that's the reality of my own heart. And and the thing is, is most likely the things you say to me, I can't do. But here, Jesus, he absolutely can do these things. He absolutely could have got himself off that cross. He absolutely could have called millions or thousands or hundreds or however many angels to his side in that moment. So the fact that he stays there, y'all, it just it, it makes me want to grit my teeth. 
makes me want to say, Lord, get off of that cross. Show them. Show them who you are. That's what I would have done. That's what I would have done. But he didn't do that. And so you have this emotional turmoil. Not only that, but he's alone. He's alone. The disciples have fled. Yes, these women are there, but they're at a distance. His friends are gone. He is physically and emotionally spent. Then we move to his death. And here we recognize a greater depth of agony than what we could have seen, than what we have seen up until this point. Here, friends, truly, we are on holy ground because here the full weight, not just of the physical reality, not just the full weight of the emotional reality, but the full weight of the spiritual reality is on display in all of its darkness. What Jesus had dreaded in the garden, what He had sweat, great drops of blood, considering here it happens. Darkness descends as God's divine judgment. His wrath against sin is poured out. Every last drop is poured out on His Son. And you'll you'll recall in Matthew, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we said, He was alone before, but now... Now He truly is the communion, the the intimacy that He had known with His Father. That triune intimacy, it's broken. And so, as in verse 46, as, as Jesus breathes His last, as He walks through death's dark veil, He does so utterly, and completely forsaken. He does it by Himself. Humiliation. It's all coming to a completion. It's all coming to a head and then it's finally completed there in the the burial. Now we could talk about the humiliation of Christ's poverty here. He has no tomb of His own. He has to be laid in a borrowed tomb, the tomb of a rich man. But friends, all I would point out to you here is the facts as they are stated to us in verse 53. Then He he took it down, that's the body of Jesus, and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid Him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been yet laid. Here is our Savior. Stone cold dead. Dead. Not half dead like people try to say. Not not just a little bit dead. Dead. Now pause there just for a second. Think about all we have seen over the past two-some years in this book of Luke. All it has come to hear. His disciples didn't expect this. His, his, those who were with him heard him. They didn't expect this. Here he is, dead. 
the work of Jesus. Secondly, in this passage, notice the words of Jesus. Now, up until this point, we have, if such a thing is even possible, we have viewed that at sort of a distance. Uh, again, if such a thing is even, uh, if we're able to do it, we might say that we have been sort of casual observers of all that has gone on. But now, here, as we consider Jesus' words in this passage, uh, things become far more personal. Whether we want them to or not, they become personal to each of us. Because while Christ's words here certainly uh, were directed towards those that were there on that day, we must also recognize that they apply much more broadly, uh, even to all of humanity, even to you and I. And notice those words are first words of judgment in verses 28 through 31. As these women mourn, as they weep after him, Jesus turns to them and says there in verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will say, to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. In other words, if what they are doing to the Messiah, to the green wood, if they're doing this, if this is what the wrath of God looks like, how much worse will that wrath be on those, the dry wood, the Jews who have done all of these things? Well, friends, we don't have to look very far into history to find the truth of that answer. In 70 A.D., the Romans destroy the temple. They decimate the Jews. They end Jewish religious observance, really even to this day, because there is no temple. So there really is no true Jewish observance of religion, because there's no temple. They absolutely decimate it all. In some sense, it's from generation to generation, right? Now we could say, well, there you go. Jews got what they deserved. But to do that, friends, would be to miss the, the greater reality. What happened to those Jews is only a portion of what will happen to all who reject, all who deny Christ and His great work. And so immediately we recognize that we can't simply be a passive observer here. We can't be uh, Herod and Pilate from last week. No, indifference to Christ is no better than rejecting Him. And so all of us should feel the weight of these words. In and of ourselves, in and of yourself, this is what you can expect if you do not look to Christ. You will cry out, mountains, fall on me. Hills, cover me. That's the truth. But notice, these are not the only words that Christ speaks here. No, in, in verse 34... He also gives us incredible, incredible words of mercy. Now, words of judgment we probably would have expected. That's certainly, as I said earlier, that's probably what I would have given. But this is something altogether different. In regards to his captors, in regards to his torturers, those who have mocked him, those who have beaten him, those who have cried out against him, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here Jesus shows us the, the truth of why he had come. 
Yes, judgment would be a result of all of this, but now, through this terrible humiliation that Jesus was enduring, God's mercy was also on full display. The only hope for those who were crucifying the Savior was to look by faith to that same Savior. Friends, it is a hope not only for these folks, but it is a hope that is for me and you. I printed it out, but I don't think I brought it with me. But Philip Ryken in his commentary, he says to the effect that that little pronoun, them, in verse 34, forgive them, It's a wonderful little word because it's able to encompass not only those who are there on on that day, but it's able to encompass all who would look to Jesus throughout history. It is able to gather in all of those lost sheep. We, even now, are the them. You may say, hang on, why why do I need mercy? Why why do I need Christ's forgiveness? I I wasn't there. I didn't join my voice to that great crowd. Actually, friend, in a sense, you did. What was happening here, what was happening to Jesus, it really extended all the way back to Genesis 3.15, right? It extended all the way back to that cosmic battle with the seed of the serpent on one side and the seed of the woman on the other. And the unfortunate reality is is that due to Adam, all of us come into the world on the wrong side. All of us come in as sinners. Sinners who in and of ourselves have rejected God, who have rejected His law, who have cried out against His anointed just as the Jews do here. And so no. Your voice may not have been raised on that day, but friends, it was a part of that cry. It was a part of that rejection, and mine was too. But as for the Jews, there is hope. There is mercy. There is mercy in the words of Jesus. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And there is mercy in what all this humiliation actually Accomplished, And that leads us to our third and final point. The fulfillment of Christ. Now I hope you recognize when I say that we could talk about fulfillment in all of the, the ways that he has fulfilled Old Testament Scripture in this passage. And it's almost every part of it. He, he is in all of it, in his words and his actions, he is fulfilling the prophets. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. He, he's, he's constantly doing what God had set out for him what I want you to see is the fulfillment of redemptive history. I want you to see the fulfillment of this salvation. And our question should be, how? How could God forgive such a heinous act? How could the Holy One forgive sin? And to make it personal, how could God forgive me? Well, I said we would come back to Simon the Cyrene, and we do that now. He carries the cross. He carries a great burden up the hill. A sign of iniquity. A sign of law-breaking. A sign of the shame that all of that iniquity and law-breaking, what it deserved. 
Now, no, in this particular case, that that cross was not necessarily his own to bear. But, but if what we have said so far about all of humanity is true, then no doubt he had a cross to bear. Some of you will have read, and you've heard me say this before, Pilgrim's Progress, and you remember Christian, before he makes it to the cross, he has this great burden on his back that he is carrying around, and constantly it weighs him down, and it makes his journey hard. Well, friends, that's true for all of us. That's true for Simon here. He should have walked up that hill, and it should have been him nailed to the cross. But then he gets to the top of the hill, And what happens? The great weight of what he bore is taken from him. And it's not because they're getting ready to raise him up on the cross. No, instead, another is nailed to that tree. Someone else, Jesus, bears the curse. He takes the wrath of sin. Sin that is not his own. Friends, in doing so, what does he accomplish? Verse 45. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain that, that, that separated the people from the most holy place. The holy of holies. The, the curtain that separated the people from the very presence of God. It is now torn. It's, it's torn completely in two. Signifying that for sinners... Those who had been separated by their sin, the way to the Father was now open. Jesus was separated so that now His people might not have to be in Him. They could walk in to the presence of God the Father, sinful as they were, because He had made them holy. we grasp hold of so great a salvation? see it in two ways here. First, you see it in the second criminal, right? He says, what are you talking about? We deserve what we're getting. You're you're telling him all these things, but we deserve to be on this cross. He didn't do anything. And he looks to Jesus. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Words, friends, words of faith. Words that he believed the truth about who Jesus said he was. And there it is. How do we grasp this salvation that Jesus has achieved for us? It's through faith. Just as the criminal looked at him and said, Lord, remember me. He had confessed his iniquities. He had said, I deserve to be here. In your mercy, take me in. Confess your sins. Tell him, tell all of it. All the things. Tell them. Say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Look to him by faith. A faith that Jesus shows us there in verse 46. Even at the end of his life, even as he breathes his last, he says, Father, I commit my spirit into your hands. Even then, as we read in our call to worship this morning, he is committing himself to the will of the Father over and over and over again. That's what we must do. And friends, when we do that, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, here's the assurance in verse 43. And Jesus looked at that criminal 
that man who had confessed his sins. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. To bring it all back around to where we started. The question stands, why? Why did Christ endure such humiliation? Why would he allow the the torture, the mocking? Why would he endure the terrible judgment for sin that we deserve? Friends, the answer is, is here before us. He did it in obedience to the will of his Father. And he did it in order to save his lost sheep. What a love he has displayed for us. What mercy and grace is now ours through the humiliation of this great Savior. Friends, one last time to make it personal. If you are resting in Jesus today, if you feel Him stirring in your heart today, then all of this, the physical torture, the emotional torture, the the spiritual torture, all of it was for you. you. That's how much He loves you. That's how committed He is to having you with Him. And so remember, I asked you all those things that you came in here with today. I asked you to set them aside just for a minute, right? We'll pick them back up again. Just for a second. If you're here today and you're struggling with self-worth, there's none more than what Jesus has given you in this passage today. He has said you were worthy of all of this. He has made you worthy. If you're struggling today with love, you don't feel like you are loved by anyone in this world, can I point you to the cross? Can I point you to Jesus? He loves you. He loves you far more than anyone in this room, any person, your mom or your daddy, anybody can love you. Maybe you're struggling with assurance. Maybe you're struggling with hope. Maybe, maybe, and this is every one of us, maybe you're struggling with sin. Friends, there's no greater and there's no other solution than what is before us this morning. Here we stand. Here we stand. We have seen the truth on full display. We have seen the extent of God's love for His people And so now, let me warn you, there's no going back. You've seen it. You have heard it. And there is no excuse. To reject Him now, to reject Him now means sure judgment. Friends, the words of verse 34 stand. There is mercy. There is forgiveness as we look and as we rest in this great Savior. And so, will you believe? Will you like these men that we have recounted, Simon? Will you like the the criminal on the cross? Will you rest and look to Him by faith today as we pray together? Father, what a a love, what a grace, what, what a mercy You have given to us. Father, it's hard to... It's hard to put all of, all of this into any kind of words that are sufficient. No words are sufficient. It's hard to grasp the full weight of what has gone before us here. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts uh, the, just the least bit of our great need, the least bit of your great love. Lord, show us the salvation that we need. Convince us of that truth. Lord, our hearts, they are prone to wander and they reject and they go their own way. Lord, we need forgiveness. We need mercy. Oh, how you have offered it to us. Oh, how you have shown it to us through your Son. So, Lord, may we not look past it. May we not reject so great a salvation. Lord, may we rest in Jesus today. We ask that, that you would just give us these moments to, to wrestle with these things. Give us these moments to, to look honestly at our hearts. Show us Jesus. We ask in His name. Amen.